The thing about weight training that makes it so tremendously powerful in terms of putting on muscle mass or holding on to muscle mass is that it's an extraordinary tensile load and metabolically stressful um, uh, stressful stimulus to the muscle, way outside the norm. What's up, guys? Welcome back to Muscle Minds with Scott Stevenson. I'm Scott McNally. All of our programming is brought to you by, by you, our Patreon followers. Thank you guys for that. I much appreciate you. We've got links to Patreon below. We're also brought to you by truenutrition.com, and you can use our code THINK for some additional savings on uh, get some MPA muscle intrusion and bust your next workout out with that. And if you are in Canada, Check out supplementsource.ca for blowout deals and high quality supplements, including get yourself a pack of ephedrine for like three bucks. How can you like how can you not? And go to go to be your own bodybuilding coach, byobbcoach.com. Get Scott's book while you're at it. You'll have like everything you need between the intra, the ephedrine, and the book, uh, and your subscription to our Patreon, you'll be set to go. How'd you like that pitch, Scott? How you doing, man? I, I like that. I'm just concerned people are going to try to like take so much ephedrine that they can read the whole book all the way through and they'll be awake for like a week. Ooh, that'd be, yeah, you gotta, you gotta dose that stuff out. Meth trip, right. We've got some listener questions uh, and I'm excited to get into this, man. We got a lot of really good feedback, by the way, everybody over at YouTube. I appreciate you guys. Um, our first question is, as a matter of fact, from Patreon, and this is from Matt. And we've kind of talked about this before. Uh, but I thought it'd be a good one to to bring up again. He says, uh, I'd love to hear Dr. Thirst Trap's take on how much protein our bodies can absorb at a time. And does being enhanced increase this? So absorption in this context, what we're talking about is protein coming from inside the lumen of the digestive tract into the bloodstream. That's going to be our absorption. And if you look across protein, you look across the studies pretty much up to, you know, I think I've seen up to like 70 grams in a meal. You're going to get everything's going to be absorbed. It's like 90 plus percent almost all the time. If you don't, then you have malabsorption. So you're going to be having some GI issue. If you have like the easiest one to know, well, that's why protein farts come, come from. To some degrees, you have a little, too, little more protein that's making it down. Um, to your GI and the bacteria they're having their way with it and they're producing gas. Um, if you have, for instance, fat malabsorption, you would literally see fat droplets in the stool because there's malabsorption, you're not getting the, the fats not being absorbed into the bloodstream. So the protein's getting, getting absorbed. Um, the main question that really I think people are getting at when they ask this um, is whether you need more protein if you're enhanced. Hmm. And this is the interesting thing. Um, literally, you do the math, and if you are just in a positive protein balance of like, and I've I've said this I don't know how many times. Cornelius is like he's gonna he could probably could just finish the rest of what I'm about to say here. Um, something like seven grams of protein a day, so that's like 28 calories. That gives you given the the uh, muscle is mainly water, three quarters, something like that. Water. That's going to give you about an ounce of new muscle a day. If we're presuming that those seven grams get incorporated, so you take in two hundred and two hundred grams of protein, and one hundred ninety-three of that is just serving to um, provide for the normal turnover that you have. But seven grams of that gets incorporated. Just seven. It's twenty-eight calories. It's nothing. It's zilch as far as energy in that protein. You're going to need enough energy in the food that you eat, and those estimates are pretty high. You might need an extra 500 calories a day. I've actually kind of done the back calculation on this to create this new muscle growth, and that's going to be highly variable. That gets into the topic of P ratio and those sorts of things. But 7 grams a day gives you an ounce of new protein, new muscle a day, wet, hydrated muscle tissue, which gives you over 20 pounds in a year. That's that's Damn. growing like a weed. That's I know. So it's it's not a matter of of protein. It's a matter of what you do with it, or that you get the protein balance. And this is where you don't you don't see this in the long term studies. There is the best we have is is Jose Antonio's 
work where they did really high, you know, over three grams per kilogram um, protein. And you don't see any added effect on muscle growth. You okay. also don't see any body fat that comes with it either, at least on average. Even though they've added like literally it's close to a thousand calories worth of protein. Protein is so thermo thermogenic um, and so poorly assimilated as body fat. You can load as much protein as you want in there. Um, the, the interesting thing is in this study now is uh, his studies have basically demonstrated that, you know, with boat loading, the protein does not mean more muscle growth. Hmm. The excess calories in that case were coming just from protein. Here's the interesting thing. Um, and we've talked about this. If you go back to like maybe it's episode 101, 102 to 100 to 102, where we did like, you know, those science you should know. Yeah, episodes. it would have been in the the nutrition science that you should right. know episode. Yeah, yeah. So covered the idea of, yeah. of overfeeding, like the Rosinex study, um, where they were given like a monster, like thousand calorie a day caloric excess. That's where you get the energy that's needed to support this protein synthesis, hmm. because it's it's a it's a pretty massive undertaking to actually do that. Hmm. It's just taking those amino acids or dipeptides that have been broken down. And then bringing them in, and then the assimilation into contractile protein and the other structural proteins in the myofilaments, in the myofibrils, in the muscle cells is kind of a big deal. So um, you need energy. It's sort of like you're at, at the work site. I'll use the work site analogy, which always seems to fit really well. If you just bring a bunch of two by fours and nails, and you don't pay the guys to do the extra work. You're not going to get any, anything faster. Like you're not going to you know, the houses are not going to get built any better yeah. just by having extra building materials around. You need the energy to make that happen. Hmm. So then, going back to the gear deal, the gear idea, the, the kind of the thrust of the question is: Yeah, you can grow muscle more quickly. Um, you don't necessarily need more protein to do that because guys have just added in gear, and it's not. We would have probably seen, and this is sort of the uh, empirical, there would have probably been an empirical notion that you don't grow really well unless you jack up your protein if you get on gear. And you want to have enough. Like you don't want to go down to like 50 grams a day yeah. or something like that. But if you want to have enough, and the thing that's going on with the gear is you're turning on those protein synthetic um, processes, and you can get a repartitioning effect. This happens in natties. This is um, Chris Bearcat's got a nice a nice paper on this, which he, he took a lot of slack for because he was talking about naturals being able to put on muscle and lose body fat at the same time. Okay, and, and that's been documented. You can see that in individual circumstances. Individuals have good genetics. Um, one thing genetics is going to determine whether that happens for someone. How hard how 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 in, impressive the training stimulus is relative to what was being done before, and the most the most impressive relative to what was being done before is when you're going from untrained to training for the first time. Yeah. And you will often see that. In fact, you can go back like the fifties and look at some of the, the studies that were done with PE students. There were studies where they compared body composition changes. They split the students up into two groups. One student, one group, these are just untrained students. They just go on a jogging program. Just, they're just running, which is not a profound stimulus for putting on muscle mass and they compare that with the weight training and over that because it's so much more than what we're doing you can you basically get the same body comp changes hmm. they're using hydrostatic weighing and those sorts of things so they're not you know not looking at mri cross-sectional area measurements or anything like that but you'll lose body fat the average person lose body fat and gain muscle mass hmm. just from becoming physically active doing vigorous activity so you add the gear in there that's one of the other circumstances where you, now you've got a novel stimulus for handling processing of those nutrients. And this is where you can see guys that, you know, go for these massive transformations and, um, you know, they put on 10, 15 pounds and hardly gain any body fat. Um, and you can literally be taking energy from those that the, from the body fat and using that to, um, as the energy that's that's required for laying down new muscle tissue, hmm. um, so that's what can happen with someone, especially who's very responsive to the gear. So I see question marks. I think you got a couple. No, I'm just thoughts. thinking about it, man. I mean, I've seen it yeah. in my own life, I, and and I I think I've especially seen it 
um, in like long ago. You know, when it, the, the, I feel like the less muscle mass I had, the yes. better I was able to grow while cutting. Um, in fact, my first contest, first, second, third contest seasons, I can tell you that after having uh, finished the season and then filled back out, I was bigger and rounder than I was before I had started the contest prep. Like there was no question in my mind, oh, yeah. especially early in bodybuilding, that you can jump yourself ahead a level by dieting down for a show, even though it, it doesn't seem like it at the time because your food's so low and all that. But after you get through it and you come back out the other side, I think it does change your body for the better. And of, of course, too, I think in my circumstances, it was always with gear. And and it, then when we look at cutting, we think about drugs like Tren. And you've got such a strong drug with, with Tren. Like, I mean, I've seen that happen multiple times, people losing fat and, you know, they're getting leaner and they're getting bigger while on trend mm -hmm. like that's not uncommon at all you know yeah growing into the show you know that yeah, would yeah that's what's i mean dante keeps on coming up but that's what he you know people would ask like how do you what do you suggest and his basic ideas were use food as your growth yeah um your substance for growth not gear make sure you're not hypogonadal you know bodybuilder hrt would be kind of like what what most of the average person might do taking on this idea some growth hormone to keep your body comp under control but nothing you're not blasting with like three grams of of gear a week or something like that in the off season and then but make gains with food and slag iron in the off season yeah get as big and as strong as you possibly can and then when you add in the sauce and you start dieting down you keep all that size or you gain some and you lose body fat and that's where guys would grow into the show and just do these just massive transformations. Yeah. Um, I feel like training is, has to be a variable in there too. You know, if, if oh, yeah. you're, you know, cause I've, I've worked with people who have, you know, really good results. And then I've worked with people that don't have such good results. And honestly, I've seen a lot of times it's in how hard they train that somebody who does like really bust their butt in the gym and, you know, they're pushing hard, going to failure, and they're progressive with their training, that that they end up making better progress in both directions, you know? Yeah, there, there's so much, there is a lot of variability in responsiveness to training. There's non-responders. So do we, you know, that's, do we make better use of protein if we're training harder? Um, yeah, I mean, you could say you've got a better training stimulus, but it's it's this hormetic curve. So you train harder, and then at some point, there's a law of diminishing returns, and you keep on doing too much, and now you've turned on protein breakdown, and you're now you're creating so much um, inroads into recovery that you're that you're not gonna I you're see. not gonna yeah you're not gonna benefit from that. So okay. yeah, I mean, my my general thought. And I, this is just sort of, and I've said this a million and one times, I feel like a broken record, but the thing about weight training that makes it so tremendously powerful in terms of putting on muscle mass or holding on to muscle mass is that it's an extraordinary tensile load and metabolically stressful, um, uh, stressful stimulus to the muscle way outside the norm of what anyone does during the course of the day. You don't see even like guys on construction workers or, or like smart mechanics who might, you know, be under underneath the car trying to get some, some rusted bolts out of, out of the car. And I, I know this cause I've, I've been in this situation. It's like, no, they, they get, they get better leverage and they, they're not, they're like going, okay, motherfucker, here we go. <laughs> like, you're not doing that during the day. There's no efforts that are like what we evoke in the gym. Yeah. So it's the quality of that effort. It's the extraordinary huh. force and effort. Um, an exertion that you put forth, hmm. which evokes for many people um, muscle growth. The interesting thing that you know this keeps on occurring to me, and I wish it, uh, this can be done um, with some of the some of the gene um, expression analysis techniques that are available now, is you know we see on average that people grow well from doing higher rep sets, especially if they're taking a failure, even the blood flow restriction as well as training heavy, which, you know, so you're talking about 80% versus 50% of a one rep max. You do those, you know, 30 rep sets, which are brutal. Um, but that's, and that's more of a metabolic stress. 
and it's still enough tension to produce muscle growth. But as I've talked about before, the interesting thing, this is kind of a little bit of an aside, but um, there's much more, um, it's such an, and this is connected with what we're talking about, it's such an energetically expensive process to grow new muscle mass. Yeah. So one way to make a muscle perform better, given the tasks that you're requiring it to do, is just make a bigger muscle. Then everything's relatively more easy, and you've achieved the, the goal of the adaptation, is to be able to shoulder the burden of the stimulus or the stress of picking up, of squatting 405 or pressing two and a quarter, whatever it might be. And if you go lighter and you're trying to do reps of sets of 15 or 20, 25 reps, you can get better at that by improving the muscle endurance capability of the, of the, of the muscle. And you see this, essentially, if you look across the various studies that have examined the biochemical adaptations in the muscle cells, you see the, like some have like a lot more growth in the type 2 fibers than the type 1, but you also see a lot of studies with bodybuilders where the type 1s are really, really big. Um, you see some studies with bodybuilders where the type 1s are average size, but they seem to have lots of them. Mm. You see adaptations where just in the short term where you get a lot more capillaries. So hmm. one thing is metabolic stress is inhibits performance. So if metabolites are accumulating, you can't produce ATP as rapidly during a, a really high effort set. So you get fatigue. So if you one way to make a muscle uh, perform better is to improve its fatigue resistance. And you can do that by having more capillaries. Yeah. Clear away those metabolites like lactic acid, ammonia, things like that, and you can you can increase the enzyme content really rapidly, um, as well as shift the myosin isoforms that make up the contractile proteins. So you can make a more more fatigue enzymatically fatigue resistant. So gear it towards those higher rep sets, and a more literally efficient in terms of force that you get. Um, at those speeds of contraction, or definitely more economical. You're not really doing work because you're lifting up and lowering down and the work is zero, but you end up um, expending less energy for producing those sets. So you you get better muscle endurance when you're doing high rep sets. And that's a, that's a really smart way for the muscle to adapt. Hmm. But And that's the interesting thing is we've got so much heterogeneity among individuals. Some go in and they lift and it doesn't matter what they do. The muscles just gets bigger. That's a viable way of, of growth. It takes a lot of energy, but like that's a but that's one of the one one form of adaptation. It's, it's one solution to the to the problem of the stress. Another end of, of the solution possibilities is just to be, and this is where a non responder hypertrophy wise would come in, is just to add, increase enzymatic content hmm. and capillary density and make the make the muscle more fatigue resistant. And not make it bigger because it takes a lot of energy to do that. Yeah, that's where someone who's a hard gainer would come in. It's like they have to like really, really eat. You see these guys who, yeah, you yeah. know, we would, we would call ectomorphs, or whatever, and like they're you know they're 173 pounds and they're eating over 4,000 calories a day, really eating, and they're pushing as hard as they can, and they just their bodies just don't want to get bigger. Yep. And a lot of time, not always, but a lot of times, they've got just a genetic propensity for being better at endurance types of activities that makes um, sense and we're you know depending we're hunter gatherers we're somewhat migratory you know um from an evolutionary standpoint yeah. but that's highly variable <laughs> so but anyway the yeah the gear the gear um the training stimulus is going to change how you process protein but um finding the sweet spot in terms of the of recovery is the is where the money's at because you right. don't recover. Hey, what's going on, guys? Are you interested in improving your joint health? Were you aware that a lot of joint health supplements don't actually repair connective tissue? Supplements like glucosamine, MSM, growth hormone. No, actually, wait, growth hormone does a really, really good job. But we're talking about health supplements here today, and I'm talking specifically about hydrolyzed beef collagen from our sponsor, 
true nutrition. And if you're using growth hormone, it'll give your body the materials to make it work that much better. Hydrolyzed Beef Collagen will help you to improve your connective tissue. It's also really popular in the beauty industry because it makes your hair thicker. It makes your nails more dense. But don't take my word for it. You can ask my 71-year-old mom. No, really, I, I brought her on. My nails were just driving me crazy because they're growing so fast. My beautician's always saying, it's amazing, you know, how thick my hair is and what good condition it's in. I've just added in my coffee in the morning, which is fantastic. It dissolves really easy. It doesn't um, change the flavor of your coffee. Yeah, that really was my mom, and she really is taking hydrolyzed beef collagen from our sponsor, True Nutrition. If you guys want to improve your connective tissue, then I suggest that you take it too. And use our code THINK. You'll get a discount, and you'll help to support our programming. Thanks, guys. Yeah, I've got a fun one for you. I got a really All fun right. one. So this is, I, I don't remember talking about this, um, but he says, uh, he says, hey, Scott, um, there was a podcast with Dr. Stevenson done a while back last year, I think, where he talked about going into the zone when it comes to training. He was very passionate about describing it. Highly motivational few minutes. Um, I've been searching for it. Uh, would you remember by chance which podcast it was? Thank you for the podcast. And I like that Cornelius uh, followed up with, he says, bro, Scott can't remember a conversation that he had only a few hours earlier, <laughs> which is true, true because, you know, we record these all the time and these are, they're just conversations, you know, it's, it's an ongoing constant thing. So some of those little details, I, I don't remember, but I, I have to think that we've, gone into that more than once it did make me think oh, yeah. though because i saw a post by dusty and dusty was asking me about this on one of the previous uh, episodes of it's just bodybuilding uh, he was talking about um, the importance of rituals uh, before training and I, I we've talked about that before and i do feel like to me there's a level of like having certain rituals that get me into the zone i need to be into um and I, I was thinking that maybe we could kind of maybe have a conversation about that, about, you know, what does it take to get into the zone and how can we how can we basically program ourselves to do that? There's so much there, man. Um, so there's this, you know, the the ritual idea of putting yourself in the right mindset for things and you, you can create your own self atmosphere. Basically, you can create your the bubble that you're in. Um, people who've been at it for a while, and you've probably experienced this. Like you end up, you're out of town someplace, and mm -hmm. um, you just you have to go to a gym, and it's not the gym. Like if you had, you know, a choice of ten gyms, that one would be would be the last on your list of ones you'd rather go to because it's just not a hardcore gym. Um, I went to a uh, is it Planet Fitness where they have the lunk alarm? Yes, sir. Yeah, and I had I have an LA Fitness membership for for these circumstances. Yeah. But I was at a going to a, a conference and I and LA Fitness was it was like on a it was a Saturday. LA Fitness wasn't open until eight or nine, mm -hmm. and I had to be at the conference at nine, I think. So I went to Planet Fitness. I just had I had to do it. I walked to the front desk, and a young kid there. He was very polite, and he said he's he literally told me he's like we don't. Um, he said something almost as direct as we don't allow bodybuilders here. <laughs> what? They yeah, didn't even let you like they, they said that before you like you didn't even you like you did nothing. They just saw you. Night. Yeah. He like he's like, you know, that we you know, we have the it's like the lunk alarm. And I mean, it was, you know, it was like it was very um, discriminatory. Huh. Yeah. No, but I said, no I, said, I said, yeah, I can understand that. They can be kind of loud and noisy and intimidate people. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. Whatever. So what happened from there? Um, well, and then I said, you know what? Um, I know there's a lunk alarm, and I knew that like he's going to be watching me. You know, he didn't do one of these things, but, <laughs> but, um, but all but that, but, you know, all but that, pretty much. You're like super nice kid, though, just a young guy. You know, he just he was just following orders, pretty much. Mm -hmm. So I went in there and had the mo I did just not like the Nazi soldiers were just following orders. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's a whole other topic, pretty much. <laughs> Yeah, normal people. That's yeah. a, oh, we don't but, get into that's a that's way off topic. But I went in there. I had an awesome workout. Did okay. not utter a peep, and I said to myself, "I'm not going to utter a peep." Yeah. And I went, and I'm like, I th it was fortitude training. I think it was um, it was a full, it was a day one or day two. So it was a full body. Yeah. And I 
I use some machines that, you know, I wouldn't normally have access to. Yeah. Um, for the pump sets. And I'm, I use the stack on everything. I'm like, I'm going to rack every machine in here. Yeah. And I'm going to just crank out the reps and not utter a peep. Yeah. Like nothing. And I just went to town. That's so I cool, think, man. Yeah. I think I used, they have a, a Smith <laughs> machine in there. And I think I did like rack deads on the, on the oh, Smith. Maybe. Why don't we have video of this? And oh, it was awesome. And, I, and it was like, I think it only went to like six plates on a side. So I loaded it all the yep. way up and like, you know, cranked out like 14 reps or something like that, you know? Yeah, yeah. Another peep. Pause the bottom, come back up, back and forth. It was just, but that was, but it cranked me up. It actually made it, it, it motivated me because, and I took that energy and just transferred it into the training. So, yeah, there's there's ritual and mindset, and you can pick that up on what's around you, or you can just create your own, yeah, um, own bubble. So, yeah, yeah, because you know we do get questions like, how do I get motivated? And I do feel like this is maybe a specific answer because, like, I have I train from home, so I think sometimes the ritual is driving to the gym for people and being in a mm-hmm. separate place, but. More and more people are training from home nowadays. They, they've had the idea like, hey, I'm just going to buy a rack, you know, and, and it'll be great. I'll save money. And by the way, you don't save money by buying a home gym because you just keep buying more shit and it becomes way more expensive than having a membership. But yes. Uh, but yeah, I think that it is a question, man. You know what one thing is for me? Uh, and, and I think maybe even if people don't realize it, uh, pre-workout. Pre-workout to me is... It's like I'm like a Pavlov's dog for training that I I take beta alanine and you can feel it. You get the tingle on your skin. And I know it's like, okay, this is like this is the trigger for me. It's like I know it's go time conditioning. Exactly. And I know that I've done that to myself. I don't know if everybody realizes it, but I think that's one of the reasons why pre-workout is so popular, because it's a ritual that you use that before you train you get a something, a sensation, something changes in how you feel and you associate that with time to train. And if you repeat mm-hmm. that process over and over again, then it just becomes wired, you know? Yeah, there's there's expectancies that come about. And like one of the like one study that it's a placebo effect um, study that comes to mind that's really relevant here as far as like weathering the pain, so to speak, of the of the training is was one where they 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 were they would do cold water ice ice bath immersion and huh. get pain ratings from from the subjects yeah and so they did the standard like control and then they and then they used a lidocaine cream and i think they may have tested out like several different concentrations that would have relative different amounts of pain reduction from numbing the skin yeah and so they could experience that and then then they came back and they and at some point in time they after they had already created that expectancy that when they add the cream, that was the intent here. They did it with nothing and then added the lidocaine cream, which did have an effect. Yep. And then they added a placebo cream, which had no lidocaine in it. And they still had the same effect on reducing pain. No kidding. So, huh. yes. Yeah. So, so you get, you take a, a pre-workout and you feel it. You can tell it's there. Yeah. And, you know, there can be an ergogenic effect from caffeine that's been demonstrated many times. But there's also some really cool caffeine studies where they've they've taken cyclists and told them they were giving them certain doses of caffeine and they evoke a perform. They, you can evoke a graded placebo based performance effect on cycling performance. No kidding. The more caffeine you tell them you give them, the better they will perform because cyclists all know that caffeine's an ergogenic aid for cycling. You know, it's it's the most widely used organic aid probably there is. Yeah. So if you believe that, you know, it's go time when yep. that when you can feel that and that yep. that sensory perception is huge. So harness that, make use of that. Um, and and so you you're basically just like you said, operant conditioning yourself to being in the zone and um, being mentally and psychologically ready to perform at your best. Um, because you're doing that over and over and over again. Something uh, it was funny. <laughs> so I'm I'm on. Um, some people might know. I'm gonna I'm gonna dip into sort of this, this kind of two things that sort of tie together. I'm on a bunch of German meetup groups. Cause I'm trying. I'm working on my German. I've done a few podcasts now in German. Um, Cornelius, his mother spoke Schwitzerdeutsch to him, um, Swiss German dialect, and he said he could understand it. A little bit of this. 
so when I was when I've done some of these podcasts, and I was on a meetup group, and the question was, or as a formal discussion group, um, what motivates you? This was just like yesterday, I think, or two days ago, I think, and I said, well, what's up with this motivation thing? Do you guys even? And I I, I kind of called everyone. I was like, I, I, do you guys believe there's such a thing as motivation? Like, what what does that actually mean? And there, motivation is is a notion that we have that you can you can sort of call upon us a, a source of discipline or something like that in some way shape or form to get you to do things that you don't want to do huh. or that you wouldn't otherwise do and really what a lot of it comes down to in my mind is that we have reward centers in our brain yeah and there's something about the activity most everything that we do that you ultimately can trace back to the reward center yeah and sure. one thing, and I'm, I'm taking this because this was a really, really well-expressed notion from the Mark Drussell podcast. And I've been on Mark's podcast twice now, I think. And he brings on a guest who's a brilliant guy, a German named Frank Tega. If Frank is listening, then Sevos Frank. Um, and they were talking about this idea. And one of the things, they had a really lively conversation. And it, I totally resonated with it. Is And Mark was talking about... Basically, he was creating an icon in his mind when he was dieting down for I think the last time he got on stage is like, I'm a bodybuilder and I do this shit. And that's what happens when you go in the gym is like, I'm a fucking warrior. I don't give a rat's ass how hungry I'm, I am. I don't give a rat's ass how heavy the weight is, how heavy it feels. This shit is getting moved. Gravity is my bitch. Yeah. And that's a rewarding thing because you are you are bringing into your mindset that this is what you do, as painful as it may be, that you you bring this unto yourself, yeah, and that feeds into your reward center because you're re- you're reiterating your sense of self in a certain you're reinforcing your sense of self in a certain way. Yeah, that makes and sense. That's a, and it's it's totally fun. You do things that make you. That, that resonate with who you think you are or who you think you want to be. That makes total sense. Yeah. 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 So. And, yeah, and, I, and I think that that's one of the, I, I don't want to get too deep here, but I, I feel like that with progressive overload, we can tie our sense of identity to having overcome and achieved that challenge. And that's what I think can be so stressful for some people who don't like progressive overload because it having to challenge yourself at that level every time you train or, you know, on a real regular basis, it's a, it's a lot of pressure to live up to to kind of maintain that. You know what I mean? I mean, you can listen to a multitude of interviews and speeches from Jordan Peterson where he, he talks about the hero archetype. Yeah, you know that that pervades you know so many of our myths and our stories and our movies and our culture of like overcoming the obstacle, like the Rocky, you know, Rocky is like a timeless story of the underdog. Yeah, so that's what you are in a sense. You're an underdog who's overcoming. In this case, that's why I like to say gravity is my bitch. Like you're actually gonna beat gravity. Like this is one <laughs> of the like the like it's a the primal force of nature. Like that's just gravity is. No one even knows exactly why it is what it is. It's yeah. like it's like you know beating God in an arm wrestling match. Like how do you do this? It's like gravity is just gravity. Um, but you, but you, yeah, but you're reifying that sense, and that's that's a that's like a really in my mind that's a really important part of living a good life is to feel like you're doing. You're, that's one of the things that that humans do well. It doesn't resonate with everyone. Being like I said this to someone the other day too, like. One of the most beautiful things you can do is be an extraordinary mother. You know, that's that's like being or a father. Being a parent is just a, like it's a built-in aspect of being an amazing human being. Is being really good at that because that perpetuates the species. That's being human. Yeah. And being a hero, you know, under whatever circumstances you have, is is part of being a good human. I think or living a good life and. Um, we don't have necessarily, especially in modern society, those challenges. I think that's why we do what we do. Yeah, you know, is so that we can have something to overcome. Um, you know, if there's if there's nothing, then life is boring if there's no challenges. We're right. wired 
for taking on challenges. I have a couple more sciencey things to add to this, though. Okay. Okay. Cool. Mental imagery and mental rehearsal are important too. So I've talked about this before. There's a couple of different models of mental imagery, mental rehearsal, and basically they you can break things down in different ways. But when you're getting ready for a set or going into a set um, or getting ready for whatever performance task you might have at hand, visualizing that with as much detail as you possibly can, sensory detail, internal and external. So what you feel with the bar, how you feel inside, what you might feel when you're getting toward the end of the set and you're like, oh shit, this, this shit's getting heavy. Visualizing the thoughts and the perception that you want to have of driving through that pain or what have you. Having done all that before, really literally lived that out previously is something that actually lights up the same um, motor neurons in the in the motor cortex hmm. as as, the, as that you use during the actual movement. You can actually you can actually get stronger just from mental rehearsal. There's a number of studies that have demonstrated that. I can just see from that practicing. Yeah, yeah, like literally, they do no training and they grow just, or they neither grow they they don't grow, but they get just as much strength gains just about as those who actually do the training. <laughs> so, so you can do all that beforehand, and that way. Like, imagine if you just walked up to, like, a heavy squat effort, like a Widowmaker or something like that, cold turkey, and just went under it. Yeah. You'd have to, like, orient yourself during the set to what you're trying to accomplish. Yeah. But if you have, if you walk up, and I, this is what I do, this is maybe what he was referring to, I, especially for the big sets, I visualize everything about the set, like how the bar feels when I, when I grab a hold of it, yeah. how that first rep feels, how I turn it up a notch as the set progresses towards the end mm -hmm. and how I, I, a lot of times I'll even see numbers beyond what are even reasonable, but I don't ever have a doubt in my mind that I'm, I'm that I'm going to get those. Hmm. So I'm, sometimes I'll just say I'm getting fucking 20 and that's like, it's something I'm going to get like 12 with maybe, but I just go for 20 yeah. and I'll end up getting like 14. Yeah. Whereas I'm sure if I thought, you know, hopefully I'll get 10. Right. That does work. You don't do that. Like, so having mentally seen in your mind's eye what it is you're about to accomplish um, means you've just done it mm -hmm. from a neurological perspective. You've largely just done it. So your any doubts, like the worst thing you want to have is you get in a set and you're like, oh, shit, this is crushing me, you know, or or you pick up a heavy weight and you're like, oh, God, <laughs> like that doesn't behoove better performance. You want to have already done that and, and been in the right mindset mentally in the mental rehearsal before you actually do it and then you're you've already so you're doubling your practice at least if you just do one round of mental rehearsal for every actual set yeah. so that's maybe what the original question was getting at too is is everything from like how does the bar feel and where does your weight belt go and how do, you know how does your hands feel and like do you typically start to lose your grip mm. you know well what do you do you know to accommodate that um you know, do you know that you're going to stop and rewrap, you know, your straps again as the reps get to the end? So you just do that. It just doesn't it doesn't distract you because you've already seen it coming. Yeah. It's yeah. kind of like you already know the route. Like, you know, you're going to have a really hard left after you make that last right turn. Yeah. So you see it in your mind's eye and then you're ready for it. And then you just fucking do it because you've already done it. Yep. Yeah. That makes so, sense. Yeah. That, so that's super, super helpful. And once you've done that for, you know. 40 years, my case, or 20 years. Like, I, we, I think we tallied up. Like, I don't know how it's like so many, like 20,000 workouts or something like that. You oh, know, my you God. Add them all up. Something like that. Yeah. It's a lot. Um, you've, then you've got a lot of reps, you know, of sure. those sets. So that's important too, I think. I would agree. I would agree. Yeah. So we had one, um, and I think this is it. It was related to diuretics. It's a big um, one. Yes, this is from Chris. He says, uh, always love the Scott and Scott episodes. Uh, I was uh, I got a question for the next episode. Could uh, Scott talk about diuretics and how they work? Simplified. <laughs> uh, where yeah. the danger lies. What a smart protocol would be. Um, and a stupid question. Would you drink more if you take one of those strong diuretics, keep fluid intake the same, or reduce it? And then he adds, he says, just purely for educational reasons, I have no plans to ever use them. They only hinder my performance on the mat. 
Yeah. So this is when um, I sent, I think, three images. Today, that second one that I sent is the one I think we can pull up. Okay. So I think I only got one. Oh no, no, no! I got I got two. Two two colorful ones. The second the second colorful one is the one. Okay. I think I have two. So is this the one you wanted first? Yeah, that one okay. there. You can probably make that just as big as possible. All right. So, first and foremost, I I have been I have never had any of anyone ever worked with use diuretics. I've had I've had a couple athletes just throw them in, even though I warned them against it, and I've had to actually fire a person or two because you can get so dry. Using basically the protocol that is in my book, Be Your Own Bodybuilding Coach book, and it's also in the um, uh, the paper that came out last year, which you can find linked to my Instagram on um, on Peak Week for bodybuilders. So you don't really need them for dropping water during the week if you if you know how to manipulate things and you have a practice run. So, um, but. And this is this is a tough. It's a very hard thing to simplify. This was this was the best figure I could get. There's some better figures out there, but they're copyrighted, so I you know didn't want to use those. This one was from Wikimedia Commons. Um, okay. This is the one of the most difficult topics to cover in anatomy and physiology. Uh, it's renal physiology, and what we have here um, are is the renal tube, the nef- nephritic tubule which is part of the nephron, which is the functional unit of the kidney. So you've got thousands and thousands of these things in a good, healthy kidney. And we can kind of start from left to right. They don't really look quite like this. They're highly convoluted. and um, But this is a very simplified version. I, I apologize if people can't see this terribly well. That just that was just the best figure I could get without violating a copyright. It looks good. It looks um, good. Yeah, you can make it any bigger. That would probably help. Um, like literally, cover, yeah. There we go. That's cool. Um, so you can see high souk on the bottom right is is the person who created this, and I added some things. So what? This is really it's a really pretty cool system. So um, if that thing on the upper left there that looks kind of like a like a two fingered hand, sort of little pincer, um, that's the renal capsule that, or not the renal capsule, that's the, um, that's where the glomerulus is. So that little kind of br- black thing in there that's, the, we basically left out a lot of what's important, but it's okay, it, it, it simplifies the figure. What comes into there is something called the glomerulus, which is a um, specialized fenestrated capillary that acts as a filter to filter the blood. So the renal, the blood that comes into the into the the, the kidney, g- goes to the capillaries that feed to each of these nephrons. So this is just one nephron. Like I said, there's thousands of these things, and the first things that happens there is you get a really gross filtration of what's in the blood into this this the tubule of the nephron there. Okay. So that yellow thing is the tubule, and what happens there. Um, the top, the top part is the cortex, which means bark, um, which is the outer portion of the kidney, and the medulla is the inner portion. Um, and from the outside to the inside, there's concentration gradients, and this is gets becomes very, very complicated. There's like we don't even have, to, we don't have time to go into all of it. Um, it's very, very cool. But the basic idea that happens here is step one is simple filtration into this collect this uh, the tubule there and at the start you have a, it's a convoluted tubule which means it kind of squirms all around there's a proximal one then that u-shaped thing there in the middle is the loop of henley and people and you can see that it's labeled there i kind of got the red circle going around it um, yep, that's one, the first action of, of the directs that we're really interested in. There's some that can act on the proximal convoluted tube, but those really aren't, aren't used that often for bodybuilding. And then there is a distal convoluted tubule. So the, the tubule goes down into the medulla with the loop and comes back up, and then it squirms around a bit. 
That's the DCT. As you can see, it's labeled up there. And then finally, once that fluid is, is to the point where it's just about to leave, it goes into a collecting duct, and that's kind of a last passage. And those collecting ducts then feed down into what are called the calyces of the, of the, the kidneys, and then they eventually go into the ureters and then into the bladder. So what's in the yellow there is what you could call urine, um, but it still goes through a bunch of filtration. What happens is there's movement across the membrane um, of the tubule to, which you don't see here, um, these paratubular capillaries. So this is the cool part. What happens here is you have various places where you can have, first you filter a bunch of the blood into the tubule, and then you get sodium and water follows salt that, that makes its way out. Um, so that's called secretion. And then it can be brought back in, which is called reabsorption. So there's a multiple checkpoints where basically what's in that tubule um, in terms of the concentration of sodium and the amount of water and the amount of fluid that actually ends up being lost in the urine um, can be changed. So um, there's more sodium movement at the beginning than at the end of this whole pathway. Okay. The loop of Henle um, is uh, where you have uh, uh, loop diuretics acting. And there is about where tw about 25% of the sodium handling happens. The more sodium you move around, the more water you're moving around. So loop diuretics, um, these would be like our good old friend Lasix. Yeah. Um, ferrosamide act there. And because there's a lot of sodium movement, this is a place where you can potentially keep water in the tubule, which means you lose it as urine. So that's one, that's the most powerful, basically, of the diuretics that we use in bodybuilding. Then uh, as you move from left to right and you go back up into the distal convoluted tubule, you've got like 5 five to 10% of the sodium load is moved around there. And that's where um, the thiazide, um, which is hydrochlorothiazide, is just sort of your primary example. Though, that's where those diuretics act. Same basic mechanism. We're just keeping water in the tubule um, by disallowing the sodium from getting out of there. So the water can't get out and be reabsorbed. I'm oh, sorry, it can't be, it stays, it, it stays outside of the tubule um, and then would get, go back into the blood. But if you prevent that process, which is what the diuretic does, it stays in the tubule and it gets lost as urine. And then finally, near the uh, end of the distal convoluted tubule, you're gonna have potassium sparing diuretics. Um, and what these do is block aldosterone or aldosterone's action. So those um, then keep potassium from being lost. When you exchange sodium, you're also exchanging potassium. So you prevent the loss of potassium hmm. when you block the action of aldosterone. So you spare the potassium. You don't lose it. And that's where these are going to have their action. So that's like spironolactone, which has a bunch of other <laughs> actions as well yeah. um, on steroid synthesis. And triamterene. So diazide, which is the one that most people will use, use aldactone too, um, but diazide, for instance, is triamterene, um, which is a potassium sparing diuretic, and hydrochlorothiazide. So you've got the, the strength of the, the thiazide diuretic, which is acting a little bit um, further up before you lose the urine in the distal convoluted tubule, but you got that potassium sparing action yeah. that comes with a triamterene. So um, the way out then you can on the far right there is where the collecting duct and tubule is. And that's where, for instance, um, ADH would act um, vasopressin or antidiuretic hormone. That's another hormone that comes from the posterior pituitary um, atrial natriuretic peptide um, acts there. So natriuresis means loss of sodium. If you lose sodium, 
you lose dire, um, you lose water too. The natriuresis leads to diuresis because natrium or sodium follows, um, or water follows salt. So anytime you lose sodium, you lose water as well. So all those arrows are showing the movement of things like bicarbonate and protons um, and potassium back and forth. So you've got this really pretty cool system where you've got concentration gradients that, that are different in the cortex versus the medulla, and you've got different transport systems throughout the entire tubule, and um, that loop of Henle serves to dive down and make use of the difference in concentrations on the outside, the cortex versus the inside, the medulla, so that you can move the ions back and forth and change the concentration of what's in the tubule and secrete, meaning take stuff out of the tubule, or reabsorb, meaning bring stuff back into the tubule so that it'll be lost as urine. So that's the basic general idea. And it's a very, but you can see there's different hormones that act here. Blood pressure, pressure makes a difference too. At the very beginning of this whole deal, um, you've got this gross filter, filtration. So you're going to, the kidney filters about like 20% of the blood that gets, goes to it. So there's a lot of blood, a lot of fluid from the blood that um, gets to the kidney that makes it into these nephrons initially but a lot of it doesn't make its way out. Otherwise, if you, you know, if 20% of you'd be just peeing continuously and you'd be dehydrated in a matter of hours. Hmm. Um, so a lot of what this is, is it's just sort of lots of exchange of, of electrolytes and fluid so that you can have options depending on what the body needs, depending on what the hormones are telling things to do. But the drugs, um, the loop diuretics and the, um, the thiazides are the stronger ones because they're acting on areas where there's more sodium exchange and thus more fluid exchange. And if you're inhibiting the, 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 um, uh, if you're preventing the, the secretion or keeping the fluid out of the, of the, the loop, sorry, out of the tubule, then you're going to, then you're going to have lots of it lost and you're going to have more diuresis. So you have a stronger diuretic. Hmm. So that's the, that's the basic idea. Um, so he asked, does it make sense, Scott? Not a bit. Generally? No. Yeah. Not I, a I, bit. <laughs> it's really, really complicated. Yeah. Um, I tried. And, I'm sorry. I didn't yeah, get it. It's No, it's tough, dude. I knew, I, 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 and probably most, most won't. You have to really, you have to look at it. I remember when I first tried to learn that, I'm like, this is fucking crazy. Yeah. So you have to understand, in order to really get that, you have to have had an understanding of, of how transport those transport exchangers work mm -hmm. because sodium is moving one way, potassium is moving the other way, and there's bicarbonate and protons. Yeah. So there's a basic and acidic of it's like, oh my God. It's highly, highly complicated. Um and you've got the hormonal influence, the blood pressure influence. So it's it's a super complicated like a like a pool filtration system. Yeah. You know, that that didn't just work with chlorine, but it worked with like four or five other things. Okay. So um, that's why, so the question is, you know, should you keep drinking water or not? What a lot of people like to do, I don't use these at all. So like, I'm the, one of the last persons to ask, I mean, I can, I can, I understand the physiology and the pharmacology very loosely, but you don't need to do that. You can just manipulate the physiology to get really, really dry is because the drugs could be very, very strong. You just, you just keep everything consistent and add the drug. So keep the water intake the same, add the drug, let the drug do the work, so to speak. Yeah. If if you reduce your water and add the drug, then you're changing two things. You know, and so so you you're then you've got more to juggle at one time. True. Um, that's why people you'll see the guys. It's pretty much and it's not always the case um, because when you get really really lean, you tend to um, hold less water. Mm -hmm which, you know, it's just true for everybody. But a lot of times, especially in non-tested shows where you see the guy who's drinking a bunch of water backstage, um, he probably took a diuretic. Yeah. And, and he's, he's got enough diuretics in his system that he needs to do that to keep from becoming overly diuresed. Yeah, yeah. 
So I've had it happen where people need to keep that when you get so lean, even without using diuretics, you have to keep drinking water or you lose that fullness, exactly. you know, exactly. And then the horror story is someone's in really, really good shape. Yeah. And they're, they're doing great. It's like, Oh, it just took a half a diazide the night before. And they flatten out like a motherfucker. Right. Cause they didn't need that. They just, the water they lost would have lost overnight would have been plenty. Yeah, we uh, we always want to do extra, you know. We always want to keep pushing it further. And what if, you know, it comes down to that that what if. Yeah, yeah, they're shooting for the A plus. Yeah, because we're obsessive compulsive about it all, and that's the thing. As I keep, as I always say, is like the the diuretics, especially if you're you know doing like the aldactone right off the bat, mm-hmm. um, that type of thing. Um for like, you know, five days or what have you, there's kidney stress makes it such that you really don't entirely recover normal water homeostasis for days. Mm, Okay. Um, Yeah. So you can't really, you can't really practice this kind of a protocol very effectively. Hmm, That makes sense. Things are different. You never really get to the same starting point. Yeah. Yeah. So you have to kind of wing it anyway. Yeah. Um, Yeah. You really do. Don't you? Yeah. And you, but, but when you do it the way it's in the paper and in my book, you can do this. You could do it every week. I've had like I think I've the most I've ever had had anyone do it was my buddy Mike. I think he did like he did it like seven times in the last ten weeks before a show. No kidding! Wow. Because he was in shape. Yeah. And you get leaner. You get leaner doing it the way, as it turns out, as well. The way I've set things up with the with the uh, getting ready for the carb up and the carb up, and you don't lose any time in terms of in terms of getting in shape for the show. Hmm. And um, he just wanted to practice it. And the more you practice it, the better, more comfortable you come with it. So your nerves don't play a role anymore. Yeah. And you can just keep doing it. In fact, another example of, that I mentioned many times from, from Dave Henry mm-hmm. is back in the day when Dave was like, when he was the muscle tech, for instance. So he'd like do the Olympia. I think it was maybe when he won the, um, the 202. Hmm. So he did, he did the 202, and then he did the the, rain, the, the Olympia the next day, if I'm remembering this correctly. Oh, they let, yeah. They let him do that, yeah. And then he had, like, a photo shoot on Sunday, a photo shoot on Monday, and a photo shoot on Tuesday. Just, like, five days of peaking in a row. That's crazy. And all, all we did, though, was we just – things were temporarily about the same. He was on stage about the same time, and the photo shoots were – they weren't, like, all over the place. We just repeated the same process each day. Yeah, of watching his weight, carving him up based on what he had done, and then cutting his water, um, you know, like six o'clock, something like that. Knowing okay. what that does to his body weight and his body water, yeah, because he was so lean already, and he literally was peaking every single day, hmm. um, no problem. Because none of those manipulations were farm. I mean, he was using caffeine, but like nothing outside of a normal habitual use. Yeah, he wasn't taking any diuretics to evoke a pharmacologically. Um, super physiological level of dehydration. Yeah, um, he was just we were just manipulating water and sodium and carbs and you know throughout the day and using the um, the head down tilt technique. Okay, so he was using it even back then, huh? Oh yeah, I came up with that a long time ago. Yeah. Okay, huh? Yeah, yeah. I would, Do you remember I what he used way. to prop his bed up? Was he so he would have been in a hotel room? At the time, he probably he was probably using phone books. He used whatever was available, like me. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, I used cool. to use the ironing board a lot. Oh, okay. Yeah. Sometimes, sometimes the ironing board didn't weather it terribly well, but yeah, I used the <laughs> ironing board. I get phone books and then the ironing board, like keep it like not extended up because then the legs wouldn't handle. But when it was compacted down, a yeah. lot of them, you know, then they're pretty solid, and that gives you like an extra, you know, five six inches. And if you have a couple phone books. You just say, I don't have a phone book in my room. They bring you another phone book, Yellow Pages. So you got two of them. So yeah. that's, you could get 10, 12 inches that way. That's funny. That's great. Yeah. I didn't realize they were using it back then. Yeah. I this I first learned about some of that back in the nine, in, in the early 90s. Okay. Um, when looking into, you know, it was, it was from this from this NASA's work. Originally is where I first learned about it because they're trying to simulate space flight. Right. Yeah. No, that when you explained it, you had said that, but I, yeah, I didn't realize that yeah. your uh, understanding of it had gone back that far. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. Victor Convertino used to, he gave a few lectures that he was worked for NASA. 
He was like their main guy. All right. Well, listen, let's wrap this thing up. And then I know we had right. uh, we had some other fun stuff that we're going to do. So if the live people are here, you guys uh, hang in here because we're going to do something really fun next. Uh, but before that, let me say thank you to everybody for tuning in to Muscle Minds. We appreciate you guys. Check out Be Your Own Bodybuilding Coach Scott's book. You can learn about Head Down Tilt, diuretics, not to use them, and a bunch more. Uh, go to byobbcoach.com and, of course, check out our sponsors, truenutrition.com. Use our code THINK and go to supplementsource.ca. Oh, and you can go to uh, amino-asylum.com. Use our code THINK there to get yourself some L-carnitine. Scott, as always, it has been a pleasure, my friend. Likewise. Likewise.